Perfect. Well, you know, like the, the internet I have here in my house can be uh, temperamental and, and uh, you know, I don't use my wife's laptop too often. So, you know, I'm used to work outdoors, not playing with technology. <laughs> of course. It's, it's quite a room you've got over there. There's lots of, lots of CDs. Is it DVDs, music? Yeah, it's it? uh, DVDs, uh, uh, my video games, and a uh, Transformers collection. Ah, what would so you... Yeah, it's, cool. it's my office. It, it's like kind of my my quiet space. You know, the only place in the house where my daughter doesn't understand why we can't open all the toys in the boxes. <laughs> have has she has she played with any of them? <laughs> oh, totally. Well, I actually I have a bunch out of the box, like from when I was uh, her age. So they don't hold their value anymore. So I, like her and I totally will play with them and and have fun and goof around. So. You know, and then my father, uh, we just actually recently, my wife and I moved into the home we're in now. Um, and uh, my dad brought me all, all my stuff out of Florida from his house. And apparently he kept a lot of things from when I was her age. So uh, she, she had quite the Christmas surprise early, you know, with just all these different toys to get up to get to play with. Yeah, nice. Sort of like a memory capsule. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It was, it was a weird little trip down memory lane. It's a pleasure to pleasure to have you on the podcast. I mean, it's 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 yeah, it was interesting. What what did you what did you think of the podcast I did with Jocelyn and Josh? <laughs> um, I you know it's funny. I know of them. Um, the guy that they either still work for or used to work for, Shane Adams. Uh, him and I got to meet uh, and compete against each other a couple of years back. Um, so where I'm at now, I'm in uh, um, Bastrop, Texas. So there's a medieval festival out here that my team is jousted at for the last eight, nine years. And the owner is a very big jousting enthusiast. So he wanted to put together a, a real tournament, like a actual, you know, where other competitors come in. So uh, I think it was 2016, uh, Shane and some of his guys came in and competed and Charlie Andrews and a couple of his guys came in and we had this greatly huge tournament and Shane and I actually get along really well. Uh, I actually like him quite a bit. And Charlie too. Charlie and I built like this weird frenemies relationship over the years, but I've come to grow and respect them and, and enjoy hanging out with them every now and again. Um, so Josh and Jacqueline were not part of the team that came to compete with us. So, you know, I know of them because of social media and, and stuff like that. And, uh, but never had the pleasure of meeting them. Yeah. Cause it's, I also spoke to, um, do you know, Andre Sina? Again, I know the name, never met him. Because he, he runs this thing called Armored Combat League and then he ran this TV show called Night Fight. And I think one of the guys that he worked with, let me remember his name. Just give me one second, I'm looking him up. I believe uh, it was Charlie Andrews because uh, um, yeah. Yeah, it was Night Fight on History Channel. Funny thing is I actually interviewed with their producer uh, to possibly get on that show. But unfortunately, I guess I'm not uh, a competitive enough or vibrant enough personality that, that they wanted more chest thumpers on their show or something along those lines. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. but you, so, I mean, it was interesting talking to you, but like before we had this interview, that you, you seem to be, you, you have your hat in like multiple different things. Yeah, and, well, you know, you were mentioning when we, we kind of talked via Messenger that, you know, you like really interviewing uh, people that, that chase passions. And for the last 20 years, that's all I've ever done. And it's interesting what you gain for that experience to what you give up to be able to do things like that. But 
but I, it was funny. I was driving in the car yesterday, just randomly thinking about that of like all these different things I've gotten to do over my my adult life, and you know, I, it's it's pretty cool to be able to say I, I've done all these different things or have participated or have gotten to enjoy and. and because I've traveled the United States for as long as I have, I've met so many good people. I have a lot of different, really great friends that are spread out across the country, which is sad when you choose to anchor down into one location. But, uh, but still, you know, it's just, it's great having all these vibrant experiences and, and uh, people in your life, you know, and, and, you know, now I'm, I'm 43 and I have uh, a three-year-old. And I was thinking about this too, that, that, you know, I ran around doing all these cool things and doing this different stuff. So now with my daughter, I'm happy to be at home. I'm happy to uh, participate with her and I don't feel like I'm missing out on the world or that I don't get to do cool things. You know, it's like, no, I've already done all those really cool things. I still get to do really cool things. And now I have this little person that's holding my genetics that maybe I can impart some of the some knowledge too. And, and, and maybe if I do my job right, you know, she'll chase her passions when she gets older, you know? Um, Cause that's the other thing is like, I gave up monetary gain to be able to do this. You know, I spent 20 years living in a horse trailer. In the, yeah. What, what, what was it that sort of made you in particular switch from doing your passion rather than the money? Um, I, you know, I can't say if I ever had that thought of, of, you know, I got to get the money or so, you know, growing up, my father um, was very much the typical, uh, for lack of a better term, leave it to be regeneration. You know, the man runs the household. He, he goes and works. He comes back. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what you do. You get a good government job, you get a pension, you get a white picket fence. And since my teenage years, I always rebelled against that. Um, I rebelled against like, school like I love subjects that I'm interested in but I would get very frustrated with things that I would I felt had no sway to any thing that I wanted to do with my life so when I get out of high school I start just kind of bouncing around between you know the typical run-of-the-mill jobs you know I, I was a short order cook in an amusement park I worked for UPS I was learning how to do computer repair you know and it was nice to have those jobs but none of them made me feel uh, good about myself. I even, I even went back to college at one point and worked really hard and got, you know, B's, B's and A's for that semester and got out of those classes. And I'm like, I feel so unfulfilled, like all that work, all that, that push. And I don't care. Like, I, I don't feel good about it. I don't feel like, wow, that made me happy. Um, now I'm a giant nerd, as you can tell uh, from the background here. And when I was living in Florida at the time, working these jobs, um, I was part of a reenactment group that, that did Renaissance and medieval reenactment. We did armored combat and rapier combat and things of that sort. And I loved it. Had a good time with it. That was kind of like my escape from reality, I guess you could say. Um, and it was athletic. It, it just it tied in all the things that I really enjoyed. And when I was living in Florida, <clears throat> I got a call from a Renaissance festival up in Ohio offering me a part. And I literally dumped all my stuff in storage and took off. I, I had no idea what my future held. I had no idea what I was going to do, but it certainly was more appealing to go and have that experience than to continue loading boxes in a truck uh, day in and day out, you know, trying to scrape together a living that, Hey, maybe one day I'll get to drive a truck too and live this monotonous existence. Um, 
so you know yeah like I, I i don't know if i ever actively made that choice per se but i think it's always been part of me you know from my teenage years forward of like what drove me forward I, like i always wanted to engage in things that uh made my heart sing if that makes any sense so and what so is your main thing as a whole everything sort of gears around being a horse trainer is that what it it, it kind of happened that way i guess um so when I went up to do that show in Ohio, I met the Joust company that I belong to now, and I started training with them. And I w it was, um, I've heard it been called, like you could say it's like a conversion moment. Sometimes when people find religion and they're just all in and, and it fulfills every facet of their life, that's what happened the first time I started interacting with horses. And, and so my story like is unique in our company because I was doing full contact jousting after five weeks of training, never having ridden horses before, um, which is not normal. Like it usually takes people six to eight months or more to train and get ready to, to do our shows. So I was an anomaly, but I was so young and spry that it never occurred to me that, you know, Oh, this isn't normal. I was just, you know, happy to be doing it. So excited, just trying so hard to make myself better. And I get to the next show, which was Minnesota, and I met some uh, girls that worked for the company that were very talented horsewomen, and they started showing me the technical acumen uh, of riding horses, and you know, like you could equate it to like dressage or hunter jumpers, rain or something that where where you go into the show ring and try to show technical proficiency as opposed to like the old western cowboy movies where they just smack the horse on the ass and scream really loud and the horse goes running off in blind fury. So that technical acumen absolutely enthralled me on top of my giant, uh, like nerddom screaming with delight that I'm engaging in full contact jousting. I just thought it was the coolest thing. So yeah, like everything that I am now, that was its starting point in a way because it drove me to learn more about the horses. And, and, and I got very lucky that the gentleman that owns this company was a very talented horseman to begin with and very much believed in a very technical presentation as well. So it gave me this branch like to, to go to other horse trainers and, and to really learn my craft to where I'm at now, where I'm running a program uh, to try and help veterans on top of a regular training program. But through all of that, through that, that love of training, that love of, of the horses and the jousting, it, because of all my traveling, I actually had a little bit more time on my hands to explore my humanity, to do all these different things. And it just gave me gateways to try a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, you know, between my martial arts, swing dancing, um, some different artistic endeavors, just uh, it, it really allowed me to, to just explore myself, if that makes any sense. What is, so what is a common misconception with regards to horse training? Um, it depends on what circle you travel in, I would guess, um, because if you were to talk to an animal rights person, they would probably tell you how uh, mean it is to make the horses work and to do all these different things, and you're just the worst person in the universe. Or you might go to a dressage person, and they're like, you know, horses are majestic, and maybe, you know, they, they have all these different tools to try and make the horse conform into a certain way, and and if they don't, well, we'll just use the tool stronger or, you know, and that, that could be any trainer. I shouldn't pick on dressage specifically. I didn't necessarily mean it that way, but, um, you know, and you, you get to other horse trainers, um, like there's a big wave in the horse community called natural horsemanship, where everything you're doing is natural, but 
Um, I've never liked that term because last I checked, I've yet to see a horse out in the wild, run up, uh, grab a saddle, throw it on their back and grab a human and throw it on their back and say, cool, we're going for a ride, you know? Um, so, you know, but those people in that circle go on about, well, we're using more natural methods and things of that sort. So the misconception can be a very big umbrella, um, because there's a lot of perspectives on it. So it is hard to, I'd say, single that out, uh, in one way. Um, but maybe I'll try, like we could say that maybe a general misconception is you get on the horse and you hammer their sides and pull their face and they're going to do anything you want. Whereas I like to equate horse training as you're trying to create a situation of it being a partner dance where anything that you would like them to do, you're trying to create the invitation that they just can't help but go there because it feels so good to accept that invitation. It's kind of like a leader and follower relationship in dancing and partner dancing that your partner can say no at any time, but you're just trying to create these invitations that are just so good and it feels so good to, to accept them. Um, and it creates, uh, you, you kind of build a relationship of success, but ideally too, with horses, you help them feel comfortable and safe about the situation that they're under. Um, so maybe that perhaps could be narrowed. I guess maybe, maybe for layman, I would say that that would be maybe a misconception. Okay. And so one thing that scares me about horses, is if I ever did ride one, I'll be a bit worried about it kicking me off. And me for me turning into Chris Reeves, what is often the reason for those sort of accidents to happen? And it is a legitimate worry because they are horses after all, and they do have um, their own personalities, their own opinions. But also, you have to remember they're animals of prey. So, in a situation um, to them is stressful, uh, or perhaps in their mind life-threatening, they're going to react accordingly. Now. Through training, you do everything you can to try and reduce the possibility of that occurring. Um, that's done by building trust with this horse, that they can trust your leadership, your guidance, that if a bad situation comes up, you'll help them out and you'll help get them out of it. Um, so any good trainer, so if you were to come to me uh, saying, hey, I would really like to, to ride a horse, but these are my fears, these are my concerns. I would make sure to put you on a horse that is absolutely bomb proof, which they do exist where they're just like, nothing bothers them. They allow you to make mistakes. They allow you to explore the relationship, but also as your instructor, I would be down there giving you uh, cues and, and ideas to play with and help you navigate how to effectively communicate with your equine partner um, where you go to like uh, maybe a trail riding stable and they just throw you on and, and kick you out there and hope for the best. Um, and they, they try to do that as well, where, oh, we'll put you on this horse or that horse and try to match you up as best you can. Um, but I always feel like, again, it, 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 as an instructor, it's my job to try and pair you up with a partner that will give you the highest percentage of success. But also, too, I wouldn't force you to get on the horse. I would allow you to interact with the horse in the way that you see fit, and I would help you build a relationship from the ground before I'd ever just throw you up there on their back, you know? Um, and again, this holds true because uh, a lot of the work I do with uh, veterans, they come in with PTSD and, and they're, they have different social anxieties that if you put them in a situation, uh, as you just described, where the horse might throw them off or throw them into a fence or, or act uh, negatively towards them, then it, in my mind, it's only going to trigger uh, that stress hormone, those negative reactions. 
um, and, and create a very unhappy relationship. So uh, again, everything I would want to do is build it from the ground up and start small and move at the pace that both you and your equine partner are most comfortable with. And what's the whole process of breaking a horse, as they say? Like, how does that happen? Do you get a whip out or do you massage it? What do you do? <laughs> so um, that actually, uh, back to the question you asked about misconceptions of horses, right? So breaking a horse is actually an old school term. Um, I've heard it associated with old school cowboys from uh, the uh, uh, prior to the turn of the 19th century, Wild West kind of era. So the idea was, is that you, you take the horse and you absolutely break their spirit to where they don't want to fight you. Um, and they don't want to argue with you. And they just, they don't, like their personality's gone uh, in a way. Where a lot of the technique has evolved over time now, where again, going back to what I was trying to describe of creating a partnership that, you know, yes, you're trying to put yourself in a leadership position, but I don't want to suck the life from them to where their true personalities don't get a chance to express themselves. So when you're starting a horse off, you're showing them how to work with you. Now, horses respond to physical cues. Um, if a horse wants to move another horse, they're going to bump into them. They're going to push them around. They're going to do all kinds of different stuff through physical interaction. So a lot of good trainers will try to emulate aspects of that physical interaction. It's just, you know, that's my life. And, and I, I, you learn how to roll with the punches and just try to figure out how to make the best situation you can. Um, and it's fun, like having her around the horses, like uh, she's going to turn four in November and she like gets to play with them and interact with them. And actually, um, I'll try I'll try to remind you and send you a couple pictures in Messenger of her interacting with the horses, kind of going back to how do we get them started and, and how do we build confidence in them and, and leadership. So, um, and I think you mentioned a whip in there. So there are, there is a tool called the lunge whip. Um, I use what's called a stick and a rope where the stick is about three feet long and then the rope is about an additional six. Now the idea is, is that stick and rope is, a, is an extension of my arm. It's not a weapon. It's not something that I want them to be fearful of. But in order to interact with them, I want them operating at a certain distance, one that's safe, especially when they're brand new and green and potentially might choose to be aggressive or things of that sort. But ultimately I'm looking to gain the leadership position by moving their feet around in the way that horses interact with each other in the wild. If you ever watch an alpha horse, they're pushing other members of the herd around. So I try to emulate that position. And eventually we, you know, we'll use a tool called a round pen, which is a, a big, it's exactly what it sounds like, just a big pen that's circular. And I'll work in the center and I'll get them to move in certain ways, change gates, from a walk to a jog or a trot to a, a canter or a lope, depending on the discipline that you're in, they have different vocabulary for the same movements. Um, and, and we build our relationship from there. But then also I teach the horse how to come and face and interact with me. Um, there's a lot of really good trainers out there that um, I draw from that I also take lessons myself to continually try to uh, sharpen my own personal uh, tool set. You know, I never adopt the, the position of, oh, I know it all and it's, and it's exact science. Horses have their own personalities, so it's your job as a trainer to learn that horse's personalities, what their nuances might be, and then how to get the best from them, how to figure out what, what job will suit them the best. And does it, is it different types of breeds of horses that you have to be careful of, like in their own sort of temperament, like there are with dogs, like you get pedigrees and... Um, yeah, maybe, I would say maybe in a small sense. Um, you have some smaller horses like uh, Arabs, or thoroughbreds that are considered hot-blooded, a little bit more reactive and, and very uh, high energy. 
Uh, you've got some of your endurance horses, that same thing. Just have a lot of energy. You have draft horses, where the, which the, are, are the big heavy horses. They're considered cold-blooded because their tendency is to be a little bit more docile. Okay. Fun. Um, so a lot of times I think, yeah, there's going to be a natural personality in there. They're going to be high energy or low energy. And then the training can kind of help, help them navigate that energy and, and express it more uh, uh, more effectively, you know, where they're calmer, despite the fact that maybe they're a high energy horse. Um, one of the pictures I'll send you is uh, of my daughter with a horse that when I started her was like would turn herself inside out because she was so fearful of being interacted with because prior to her coming to our program, she was a trail horse. And on the trails, you know, people don't have steady hands. They don't have steady legs. Maybe they pull really hard. And it just was an unpleasant existence for her. So she was very fearful of that interaction coming from me. And I showed her that, that our relationship will have um, more benefit for her that, hey, if you're soft and nice with me, my hands are soft and nice with you. I'm not going to hammer your sides to get you underway. I'm going to use rhythm and timing to communicate with you. And make the overall experience much calmer, much nicer, to the point now where uh, I was doing lessons yesterday, uh, or I'm sorry, Sunday, and and my daughter comes up to me when I was done, and she just takes the reins and she walks that horse back all the way to the stalls, you know, and, and hooked her up, and the horse is just not even a care in the world. It was calm, quiet, just easygoing. Whereas six, seven months ago, I would never let her do that. You know, I would never let her take that horse because that horse was so unsure of herself. Yeah. So what that's, um, because I've, I've got horses. What do you make of, so what, so you think a lot of lot of the accidents with horses come from the temperament of the horse and like someone not looking after them properly, and because of um, me. It's hard to say because I, I don't work at every every barn. Um, in my experience, when I've seen horses have an issue, uh, more often than not, it is rider related. Um, but it also can be in combination of things. Again, sometimes a horse gets nervous about something, they freak out. The rider freaks out. And now it's just one gigantic freakout. Um, whereas, uh, for example, there's a horse that I'm training here that is exactly that, freaks out about everything, you know, and it previously has bucked off riders and is, it was just an absolute nightmare. Um, and I've been working him and, and same thing, building his confidence from the ground and eventually built his confidence from the saddle to where we were on a, a big open field and something in this ground scared him and he went to buck. But because my demeanor never changed, the response habits I created on this horse, meaning that, hey, when I do this, you do that. Um, you know, when he started getting himself into trouble, I asked him to do something he was familiar with. And initially he started out scared, but then because we've done this maneuver a million times over, he was like, oh, I'm comfortable with that. Oh, there's nothing to be afraid of because you're asking me to do this thing that I know I can be successful at all the time. So it, it, it's a matter of creating outs and response habits that if you do get into trouble, you have options. Okay. Uh, if that makes any. Uh, what I find, yeah, what, what, 
one thing I've noticed when I've seen horses and their mm. riders is what, what, why you wear a lot of horse riders, they wear these funny clothes when they're on the horse. Is there a reason for it? Um, I tend not to. Um, you want some water? Go give me a cup. I'll get you some water. Um, so, like the traditional dis disciplines like dressage, hunter jumper, English, they tend to wear like wearing the tighter pants, the tall boots, um, sometimes helmets, sometimes not. Um, when they get into the show ring, they want to wear the more formalized outfit. They have the top hats, the tails, all the different things. Um, I don't, I don't have the exact reason. I'm, it's got to do with presentation. Um, the Western disciplines want a more Western look. So when I've shown horses in raining, I've had to wear, you know, a cowboy hat, uh, a buttoned up collared shirt, jeans, a belt, uh, and, and the style of boots that, that we wear, um, for that discipline. So, um, yeah, as far as like a perfect explanation, I really couldn't offer one up because my training for the longest time has been outside the norm of the horse world that when I go to train horses, I wear jeans and a t-shirt and a ball cap, you know? So, um, but that's just me. <laughs> well, cause I, I've, how does the structure of like being invo involved in training horses and horse riding work? Because, you know, I, I've, all I know is the Royal Ascot, the Grand National and people riding horses. That's all I know about horse riding. And like, I've seen the Olympics and one of our Royals has won a few medals in it. That's yep. all I know. Um, well, again, the horse world is expansive. Um, so there, there's really not a one size all fits answer. Mainly, you know, again, like dressage, they want certain types of movements and presentation from their horses, especially when they're showing and when they're judged, they're graded on the execution of each particular maneuver. You have reining, uh, Western Pleasure, which also does similar types of shows where you get into the ring, you show your partner through a series of, of uh, predetermined maneuvers, each maneuver is graded, um, and then you kind of fit your scoring in uh, from that, you know, and that'll determine who's who's top and, and who's bottom and things of that sort. But then you can go to Colorado and and you'll have guys that go out to like hunt elk and they're going to have trail horses that are not as technically precise as some of these other horses, but they get on those trails. They're confident, they're reliable, um, they know their jobs really, really well, um, but they're not necessarily being graded on, on their technical acumen. You know, it's more like, oh great, this horse is super reliable out here on this trail. And, and I, I know I can trust him. You get, uh, you go out to the steppes of Mongolia and you have, you know, folks that live with those horses every day and it's part of their natural existence, but uh, they hunt off of them. Um, uh, the Mongolians are renowned for being uh, horse archers. So you have that aspect, you know, and they're not necessarily being graded on, on uh, how pretty their horse is and what they're doing. So um, again, it, it's, it's, a very, very big tent of, of what to do, especially for when I'm teaching people and, and I have people coming to me uh, wanting to, to have their animals or trained or whatever. I, I try to find out what it is you would like to do. So that way I could just create the best possible relationship. Oh, what state are you in and what city? Uh, I'm in Bastrop, Texas now. Oh, is that near Austin, Texas? It is. It's about 30 minutes away. Okay. Ooh. Which is funny because I didn't know I was going to end up living here, but uh, I mean, I'm 
it's weird because of my horse training background when the pandemic hit and and struck down the performance venues i'm used to going to um the guys that i work for now just were like well well you're stuck do you want to do you want to train some of our horses and i made them a proposal and then they liked what i was doing and they said hey we really want to keep you around so all of a sudden i have now a regular full-time job you know and my wife's a nurse so um for her, it was easy to to get a job, and uh, and then all of a sudden we bought a house in Bastrop, Texas, and that was not the normal plan. We we were living in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and we were supposed to go home, and I was gonna actually possibly open up a martial arts gym uh, with a couple guys and and do that, but then everything completely changed, and and here I am back to doing the very thing I love doing. So, what 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 kind of martial arts did you get into? Um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a grappling art, um, Judo, which is also a grappling art, but more focused on takedowns and throws, and uh, Muay Thai, which is a uh, kickboxing art out of Thailand. I think, I mean, Jude, is Judo perhaps more practical in self-defense? Because, I mean, if you throw someone on concrete with those throws, it's going to bloody hurt. <laughs> it's true. Um, I, in my opinion... Um, every, there are, there are practical points to every art. Um, if I were going to staple one though, for like just a, a layman who just wants to be a hobby person, um, I would, I would actually say Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And my reason being is that, yes, you're right. You know, if you're a good judoka, you can dump somebody on the concrete and that should be the end of it. Now in, in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, we do learn, uh, uh, judo as well, not as extensively but it is part of the vocabulary because the or origin of the art was from judo. So, um, but jujitsu is what happens after the throw, how to maintain top position in a grappling situation. If somebody manages to pin you to the ground, how to get out from underneath them and get back into a, a, a more dominant position and get away, how to affect chokes, where if your attacker, again, is instilled and you put a choke on them, you put them to sleep, they're not going to come and get you anymore. Um, and, or, and especially in my, and again, strictly my opinion, uh, so it doesn't have to be taken as gospel, but for women's self-defense, I think it is highly applicable because one of the primary defensive positions, which we refer to as guard, which is where I'm on my back and I have somebody in between my legs. In a, in a woman's uh, situation, if that was a woman on the ground, that would be the primary position for uh, somebody to try and sexually assault her. Yeah. Where previously considered, oh, I'm in such a vulnerable position, it's actually a very strong position, and, and women can defend themselves very, very effectively from that position. Um, I train and have trained with women that are literally half my weight and are so skilled that uh, their transitions, that like they, have, they beat me very handily. Um, because they're so highly skilled and highly trained. Um, so I would say jujitsu edges out judo in that regard for those reasons. But judo does practice what's called the noasa technique, which is ground stuff, uh, you know, arm locks, chokes, and joint, uh, joint locks. But uh, they don't focus on it as extensively as Brazilian jiu-jitsu does. Um, but both are, are very – like, I, if, if somebody was going to train, I'd train, absolutely train in, in any of those arts. Any one of them will – will help you and teach you something positive. But like for myself, 
uh, like my daughter actually just started training a little bit with me uh, in jujitsu. And for her, it's going to be just like brushing her teeth. You know, it's just going to be part of our, our every day um, because I believe that that will help her the most. Um, but again, like if, if I met a really high level martial artist in another art that had a different opinion, I wouldn't sit there and go, you're wrong, you're wrong. I would honestly, you know, they're probably right, you know, because they're highly trained in that, that art and they see the positives in it. So I think any kind of training is better than no training. It was quite funny because a lot of, I watched a YouTube channel on like different martial arts and like they say with certain ones that are too flashy, a lot of them don't do pressure testing. Well, the ones you mentioned, like judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai, there's a lot of pressure testing. Mm -hmm. And I think in the fight, when the, when the pressure's on, someone wants to kill you. They want to hurt you. You haven't got time to do all those moves. And, like, no one's going to let you do that. you just got to make it quick and simple and practical. Well, that, and as you said, we pressure test it. And it gives you a practical understanding of the moves, the moments, the aggression level. What does that feel like? So my wife, when we met, um, and the reason why she's my wife is because we, I took her to a training class and she loved it. And she, we, we left there and she looks right at me. She's like, babe, that was a great date. I'm like, I'm marrying you. I'm keeping you. So, <laughs> so we, um, but when she was training with me, because I am twice her size, um, I had her where I would get in a mount position, which is me on top of her. And I kind of let my weight settle on her. Now for women, more often than not, and this is not all women, this is just my experience with the people I've trained with. So again, I will happily admit if, if my perception of this is incorrect. But for a lot of women that I have met, that when they get somebody who's twice their size on top of them, sweaty, breathing on them, and smushing them to the ground, it is a horror, it's a mentally horrifying experience. It is not good. And a lot of times in a self-defense situation, you know, maybe a, somebody took a self-defense class where they learned to rake the eyes or, you know, stick a thumb up the nose or whatever, whatever they come up with. But then when the moment happens and that big, nasty, you know, horrible person is on top of them and all those, like they freeze up, they lock up because they don't know what to do. Where with my wife and other women that I've trained with, I put them in that position, but I also am not trying to be a jerk and just totally grind them into existence because I know my skill level is different than theirs. So I'm, I'm putting that pressure on, but also giving them room to work a little bit. And they know the second they say, you know, tap or they tap me, I'm, I'm done. I'm getting off of them. I'm getting clear and giving them all the space they need. So it gives them the ability to navigate these emotional fears safely because they know that the second they tap, all the pressure comes off that nobody's in there to try and, and hurt them. Um, and for my wife, that was a big thing because she, you know, handles it better now when bigger guys, you know, are, are trying to use their strength to, to dominate her in, in, and dominate in the correct sense of, of pressure testing, not, you know, a big, strong, going to smash you kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's exactly, yeah. Why, uh, why I believe these arts are really good for that pressure testing, even Muay Thai, where, you know, it's, it's strictly a standing art, but there are clinches and grapples and takedowns within it that translates so beautifully to judo and, uh, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu that, um, but they learn the timing and the distance needed to affect good punches and good kicks and everything else. Well, hi there. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, she, she can join. Let's, let's do it with her, the whole thing, and let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
we're still hanging out as long as she likes to, and then she'll venture off to see what else there is to see. <laughs> but and again, like you said, I think you had the right of it that the pressure testing is so important when it comes to, to the arts. And what about knife defenses? I mean, they that is... I looked into that a bit on YouTube and they said effectively a lot, most of the knife defenses are basically useless at all. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially anything coming off of YouTube, you know, they're, they're definitely take it with a grain of salt. Um, I have never uh, trained knife training per se. It's not something that the gyms I train at focus at. Um, so I can't say that I would have any practical knowledge as far as that goes. However, from my fencing and sword fighting background, I'd say I have a cursory understanding as to what kind of distance I might need to keep. Um, but I am pretty certain that if somebody came at me with a knife, I would probably get cut multiple times, you know, if I was going to attempt to subdue the attacker. Otherwise, I'd try yeah. and keep my distance and not let them uh, get close to me. Safety first. But, I mean, it's, it's a virus. It's a strange one in a way. There's some people saying it's nothing, some saying it's something. But also... Well, there was a funny news article where there was an influencer in Instagram with a million followers who said, oh, it's nothing. I saw that, yes. <laughs> and then he contracts it and he dies. <laughs> well, I don't know what to say about that. Well, he uh, apparently had pre-existing heart condition and COVID uh, does attack the heart in certain instances, depending on what mutation hits you. Um, you know, I, I mean, if we're going to, we can dive into the political. It doesn't bother me a little bit. And it's unfortunate that that uh, a pandemic like of this nature or a virus of this nature has become such a political thing. But interestingly enough, if you go back through history and look at the world's pandemics, we're almost repeating ourselves because people reacted exactly the same way that, you know, the government, whatever the governing body is, tries to impose restrictions and, and the populace kind of resists back going, you're impeding my freedoms. How dare you? Um, I actually just got done listening to a, a earlier podcast this morning talking about uh, when the plague was ravaging Europe and that Venice um, actually set up on their little islands in their harbor quarantine stations where they would set these buildings up and sailors coming in from other countries had to, had to live in these things for 40 days before they were allowed to actually step foot into Venice. Um, you know, and, and, and people argued and resisted and, and weren't happy about it. Um, when Athens got hit with their plague, uh, and this is in antiquity. They went through the same troubles and trials and tribulations of people trying to balance personal freedom and personal responsibility and, and sometimes getting the two confused. Um, and that's the tough part about this virus is that um, it's so unpredictable that a lot of people, for the most part, shrug it right off and go on with their lives. But there is a percentage of the population that it absolutely ravages. And, and for them, it's a nightmare. And for those people that have lost somebody to this thing, it, you know, it's serious. It's, it's, a, it's a serious, serious monster. You know, and, and, and it's tough. Like, I, I got a fever a couple weeks ago, and, my, and we freaked out in the house here wondering, oh, shit, is this it? Um, is this the thing? And for me, you know, my fever was gone the next day, and I got tested, and everything was fine, thankfully. You know, um, and of course my wife's experiences as, as a, so she deals with post COVID patients. She sees the aftermath and it is, it is harrowing experience for those that have survived it, but have long-term effects. 
it is even more, you know, and, and a lot of people don't understand what a toll it's taking on the healthcare workers. You know, my wife carries a lot of emotional baggage coming home because most healthcare workers are exceptionally empathetic and are there to try and help people. And when you feel like you can't help them, it's, it hurts, it's hard, you know, and, and they carry that home with them. And it's even more frustrating to, for them to see people acting so recklessly and cavalier that as these hospitals are, here we go again, you know, they're starting to fill up again. And, and, and yet something as simple as wearing a mask is like a massive issue. When masks have the possibility to reduce the severity on several fronts, that either you avoid the infection entirely, or if you do get infected, the viral load is reduced, that your probability to survive this is increased. But yet, you know, all people want to scream about is their freedoms. Like I train jujitsu in a mask. I train Muay Thai in a mask. I do full rounds of hard cardio with a mask on. Okay. It's possible. It, it's not a hard thing. So uh, again, for any of your listeners, like I don't mean to politicize. All I can speak from is my, per, my home experience and how much it affects uh, my wife and how hard it is on her because it's, it's hard for her to watch these people go through this. Um, and other healthcare workers that are trying desperately to stem the tide and keep people alive, but then yet people don't wanna seem to be kept alive because they have a, a perspective about personal freedoms. So it's tough. Yeah, did you have any of these anti-mask protests? Because in London, we would get like thousands of people coming in doing these anti-mask protests. Yeah, we, I haven't seen them personally. I know in Austin, when the, the, a lot of protests broke out over police brutality and uh, BLM and, and aspects of Antifa, um, a lot of that happened. But uh, there was also a lot of counter protesting, you know, Trump rallies and anti mask rallies, as you're describing. So I have made it a point to stay away from all of it. And thankfully, Bastrop is excuse me, uh, a very quiet town. Uh, and also my job with the horses keeps me very busy. So I just interact with them and it keeps me a little bit more sane and out of trouble. You know, um, it amazes me and I certainly have my strong opinions about it, but you know, I try to, for the moment, I, I try to take care of those around me. I try to take care of the, pe the veterans in my program, uh, the people that I train with when I uh, go to jujitsu and my family. You know, and that's, I guess, the best I can do. Who, who has, so it's, it's interesting you mentioned all these different things and like family and like, I mean, it is, it is a difficult time for everyone out there. Mm -hmm. And who do you look as an example during these difficult times? Like a hero? As far as what, like a mentor to myself personally or just like a political figure or like a mentor in terms of like handling these difficult situations to help you go through it. So my, my professor, uh, which uh, black belts in jujitsu are referred to as professors. Um, so the gentleman I train with here, uh, Alex, um, I look up to him a little bit, you know, um, and, and he definitely like has the, the, the mindset of living without fear, like acknowledging that the virus is real, but I'm still going to try and live my life. Um, you know, but then some of the guys that I train the horses with, um, and work with them, you know, one of them is a medical professional. So we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, honestly, I, 
like I, we, my wife and I try to take information from, from various sources and then together we try to make the best decision we can for ourselves to not necessarily live in fear, but also live responsibly to make sure that we're protecting ourselves as best we can and also protecting others. So like right now, like I love training jujitsu, but I only go two nights a week just so that way I could train a little bit and maybe reduce my chances of coming into contact with the disease. Um, but thankfully, like our gym, we do temperature checks and, and, you know, if you feel remotely sick, don't show up and things of that sort. Um, but still, I, I fully acknowledge that I am making the active choice to take a risk. But I also like we train with our masks on. We don't, you know, we're not sitting in, a, in an enclosed building without uh, any protection or whatever. So I try to mitigate the risk as best I can. Like we choose to send our daughter to an outdoor school because, again, it's well ventilated. They have COVID policies in place that we think are good. And, you know, it's very important for my daughter to have the ability to interact with other kids and as it is for any child. But if she was a student in, in a school right now, I probably wouldn't send her because of the enclosed space, high number of kids uh, tightly packed together and that, that concerns me. So like I say, we try to weigh and measure. Um, what, what, do you, what are you gonna try and do once this is all over? Like what lessons have you learned and what are you going to put to, what are you hoping to plan and put together? What's your goal? My goal is to, to grow the veterans program that I have working on right now. Um, and to, you know, increase my um, range as a horse trainer, which is all I'm focused on now. And, and, you know, I'm striving to get my jujitsu black belt at some point. Um, so I, I'm one of the very, very lucky few where my life is not radically altered by COVID because of the environments I'm working under right now. Like I'm not around a lot of people. I don't have to go to an office. I'm doing the very job that I would be, I, I would be doing this if, if it was a normal world. Um, so it's very weird that this opportunity came about amidst the pandemic. And for the first time ever, I'm not living in a horse trailer, but my wife and I bought our very first home together. Like under these circumstances, it's a weird feeling. So when we get to the other side of this thing, the more I can do to help the program grow and help other people and always just try to make sure to pay it back to society as best I'm able to by being productive, but also if I'm in a position, you know, reach out a helping hand to somebody, um, you know, that, that, that's the direction I'm going to try and, and move towards. And what's, has been the biggest lesson you've learned about people during this pandemic? Huh. I, you know, um, I've had a mix. Uh, it's some people can be exceptionally generous and some people absolutely suck and are reckless and, and heartless individuals. So, you know, I, 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 which I think that's just humanity in general, but I think it is amplified even more right now. And especially in the States, by the pandemic, by uh, politics, social media, and a lot of its forms, um, that people are, we don't know how to be people, like just nice to each other anymore. Everybody's too busy sitting online and being anonymous and having no repercussions for saying something horrible to somebody that you probably wouldn't say to their face more often than not, you know? Um, so that, at least in my mind, that's what I've learned about people. But again, like when I'm, the people I've surrounded myself with are not those people and I stay to them and 
the people in our program are not those people. Like when they come to, to work with us and, and we do our therapy days with them, we don't, we don't talk about polarizing things. That's not the point. We're there to enjoy the love of horses and love of, you know, camaraderie, whatever it may be, and try to stay focused on positives instead of uh, negatives. Of course. What's, um, so you've done quite bloody hell. You've done so many disciplines and it's, it's like you, you're, if MMA was life, you would be it. Yeah, probably. Like I, I've always said, like I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. You know, I, uh, and, and it's, it's fantastic that I've had all these experiences. Like I spent quite a number of years swing dancing and I loved it. And Austin has a vibrant swing dancing scene. Ooh. And so does Dallas. And Dallas is one of my favorite places to go to with some of my favorite teachers that I, I haven't, they haven't never met my wife. So when the world kind of loosens back up and we're able to function and hopefully we've made it through safely. Oh, I, you know, I'm taking, I'm taking both my wife and daughter up there and, and same thing, you know, for my daughter, like she loves to dance around the house. So hopefully maybe swing dancing will be something that she'll enjoy incorporating into her life as she gets older. Um, because also I think, you know, swing dancing as much as uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is another way that teaches really proper interaction between people, how to be polite and respectful and courteous and kind towards each other. Um, so that definitely something I look forward to bringing back into our life when we're able to. It's well, I'm going to ask you another more interesting question. And this yeah, may be I, I love them. <laughs> what, so from your, each of your passions in life, would you be able to tell me what is a lesson you've learned from Like one lesson that you've learned in this life? Um, Ooh. Live for the moment is the one lesson that I learned early, early on, um, where you enjoy every moment you can. Because it's not going to be the same afterwards. Each moment is different. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. <laughs> I just said, no moment ever stays the same. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so you learn, you learn to appreciate it. You know, like this sometimes might drive me crazy, you know, but this, this, little, this little monkey here is the only one I have, and I love her to pieces. And, and these are the things that I'll remember when I'm older. You know, and, and, and when she's off running around with her friends and doesn't want to see her old man anymore, you know, I'll remember times like this and, and just chuckle to myself, you know. Um, you know, and, and then actually that's another thing that I definitely say that, that jousting and horse training has taught me, patience. Really how to be more patient and understanding of a person. Like, especially when she was a little itty bitty and nonverbal, I learned how to read her body language well and be more patient with her and, and how to see what she needs and what, what she needs to do. So it's that, yeah, it's definitely that living for the moment and, and how to be patient and appreciate each moment. I can absolutely say is the takeaway from my adult life, you know, as a jouster. And, and we haven't even talked about my years as a professional wrestler. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I did that too while I was jousting. And, and I mean, you know, who gets, who, who can sit here and actively say that? Oh yes, I'm a jouster. I'm a professional wrestler. I'm a swing dancer. I'm a you know martial artist like like whose life does that, you know? And somewhere in there, I'm a dad and I'm a husband, you know. But you'll wrestle anyone that gets in the way of your your wife and your daughter. <laughs> nope. The good thing is, is they'll they'll know how to do it themselves. I you know I'll always have their back and I will protect them. But you know, hopefully, if I can do it right, she'll know how to stand up on her own too and, and protect herself. 
Uh, As you can see, she's got good kicks. Definitely. Boom, boom. <laughs> what, what, so what, what has been the, what, what was, how could you sum up your experience as a professional wrestler? How did that happen? And what level did you get to? And did you speak to The Vop or Chris Benoit or any of these other WWE wrestlers? So uh, I, was, I got into professional wrestling through jousting, interestingly enough, because one of the guys that I jousted with, the guy who initially taught me, uh, was a huge fan of professional wrestling, as was I. So we totally would nerd out about that. And, um, and through him, I met uh, a guy named Lance Michaels down in Florida who um, uh, we started training under. So through him, like for me, wrestling, I was just a fan. Loved it. And, and I just wrestled because it was fun and the independent scene was fun. And I was, what, you know, I was what we call a mark where, you know, I never had aspirations to go to the WWE or anything like that. I just enjoyed getting to learn the craft because also like learning how to fall and protect myself and sell and perform is very applicable to what we do with the jousting and how to make that look good and uh, how to make, um, how to make the shows really presentable. Um, so, and, and actually it's funny I am the only guy that I can say um, that because of my professional wrestling, I learned how to do. Uh, are you familiar with Jeff Hardy, the wrestler? I've, I've, I, let me check. I'm going to look. I think I know who he is, but let look me look up Jeff Hardy Swanton Bomb. If you if you got your computer there. So is it G? J E F F. Oh, okay. Hardy. I am yeah. not, but I'm intrigued to find out about him. All right. He's an interesting cat. Um, I was a huge fan of his uh, early on uh, in my younger days. If you're using YouTube, uh, if you type in uh, Knight Swanton Bomb in armor, um, that uh, will give you something interesting to look at. Oh, okay. oh so he does these like funny acrobatics effectively. Yeah, he, he does, he, he's a very talented wrestler. Now his his move, the Swanton Bomb, is off the top rope where he flips over and lands on a guy. So if you look under that heading on YouTube, um, it's a video of me doing the same exact move off the back of a horse in my suit of armor. Oh, okay. Oh, in in the first oh, in the in I've got a thirty nine second video. Okay. Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, it's not very long. But it should be a guy in armor standing up on the back of a horse. Was it at the start or the or or at the Okay, I didn't find it, but I'll I'll have a look at some point. But that that's so it's it's us. Now, being with a wrestler, there's some questions I want to learn. How do you trash talk? And 
Like what 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 brings this sort of soap opera? Why do people get drawn to it even though they know it's fake? It depends. Um, I'd say there's a variety of reasons. Um, so for example, I CM Come comes out and shoots this interview. So an interview that is reality based is referred to as a shoot in wrestling. So work means that it's it's the planned aspect of things that you're working the audience. A shoot. Oh, it might be on the chair. Go look. So, so he comes out on stage and does this shoot promo about how terrible the company is, how awful Vince McMahon is, but he said it in such a way that you could tell there were elements of reality in it. And it caught, it captured your attention. It captured your mind of like, wow, this is different. This is something that doesn't seem so contrived. And, uh, and I just remember uh, just absolutely being intrigued by it. And and then when it got built up to the match that he's supposed to have, nobody could figure out what the finish was going to be, what how the match was going to end. That's captivating. So ideally, you're trying to create these matches that nobody's going to be able to predict the, the finish to, but also they're going to attach themselves and invest emotionally because they believe in either the story or the cause or, or whatever it may be. So it, it just depends. Like, Years ago, back in the 80s, there was a wrestler, Jake the Snake Roberts, that did an angle with another wrestler, Ravishing Rick Rude. So Jake Roberts' uh, real wife, Cheryl Roberts, was at the, uh, the, one of the events, and Rick goes up and starts hitting on her and getting real fresh and nasty, and Jake comes out and, and makes the save. But here you have an issue that any, any married individual can absolutely identify with, with somebody creeping out on, on their wife or something, out, or something like that. So that's a story that that would that as they would say in the business would draw money, you know. So you're trying to create instances of that where um, you're trying to build an issue between you and, and your partner that everybody can understand, that they want to see a result of that 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 match or that feud between the two individuals. So that usually is how wrestling should be constructed. Although in my opinion of late. Wrestling has become much more of a gymnastics routine as opposed to a small reflection of, of uh, physical reality. You know, like pro wrestling emulated an MMA bout to an extent, you know, where back in the day in the 90s and, and 80s, you know, there was a lot more realistic elements to that match and you could, you could suspend your disbelief a little bit. Where nowadays the wrestlers are doing so many acrobatic moves all the time and the guy that just got smashed by somebody coming off the top rope, you know, doing some spectacular move, they pop right up like nothing ever happened. And then they go into their series of fantastic uh, acrobatics and moves and different things like that. So um, wrestling is not what it used to be. So like I'm a, I'm a fan that is, doesn't watch anymore because it's so boring to me because there's no, there's no story for me to believe in or, or, or something for me to, to bite into going, Oh, this is, diff this is interesting. So. What do you make of, how come uh, Brock Lesnar was able to do so well in the UFC? Because he's a legit athlete. That man was a, a multi-time NCAA wrestling champion, a physical specimen. Like his wrestling pedigree was unbelievable. So, you know, he learned how to work what he was doing because he came from amateur wrestling directly to WWE, but then he left and, and sought out proper trainers, but because his wrestling was so good, 
more often than not, a really solid wrestler with uh, a little bit of striking can be a very dominant force uh, within the UFC. But then you also saw when, when he met an elite striker uh, and somebody with elite cardio uh, like Cain Velasquez uh, and Alistair Overeem, he got wrecked. You know, he was taken down. But it's not to say there was, you know, there's no shame in losing at all. You're going to lose. That's just the nature of fighting. Um, but again, Brock Lesnar had such a tremendous pedigree. And it's the same reason that when CM Punk tried to make the crossover, uh, it didn't go so well for him. Um, and again, no disrespect to him at all uh, for getting in there and, and taking a hold of an opportunity. But he, he needed many, many more years of training before he should have ever been in that cage fighting. Um, and, and again, I say that with all respect, you know, hats off of him for, for getting in there and trying it uh, and doing it. But th that's just the, the fact of the matter is he did not have a pedigree like Lesnar. And, um, one thing I find interesting about wrestling is that Muhammad Ali, before uh, he watched the wrestling, he didn't use to trash talk. But as soon as he watched wrestling, he started trash talking. Yep. Well, he figured out that's that's how you sell fights. That's how you you know, get people interested in what's going on. And he was a master at it. Um, yeah. And, and he's not wrong, you know, and, and there's a fine line, you know, because like some of the fighters in the UFC now talk so much garbage, it, it gets tiresome. It's tedious, you know? Um, but then other times there's like an, an issue that comes up where, you know, they're a little respectful towards each other. And then at the end of it, they, it resolves well. Like, I, I don't know, you get a good mix in the UFC. Um, but you get guys like Chael Sonnen and Conor McGregor that really mastered the art of selling the fight, you know, and, and, and the psychology of getting, because that's the other thing about Ali is he was so good about getting into your head and messing you up before you ever got into the ring. So you were beaten before you ever got there. So. It could also have an adverse effect. I mean, look, it could be even Conor. <laughs> that was no, and, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, or uh, look at uh, Kamara Usman and uh, Colby Covington. Colby talks so much garbage, it's just never ending. Um, you know, and, and he's so scripted and robotic. It's just, he's awful to listen to. But, you know, he just talked and talked and talked, and then Kamara, you know, beat him down, you know, and, and, and ended up ending that fight pretty definitively. So, you know, and again, there's something to be said about having all that belief and confidence in yourself. But there's going to come a point where you talk to that much trash eventually somebody's going to catch you that's just the nature of it yeah where it goes well it's the same thing like with jousting you know and 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 when i'm presenting shows like we we do our jousting when we're dropping lances at each other it, it's legit we're really trying to take each other out but um when uh when we uh are doing other elements of the show it's a little planned out. It's worked. You know, we have planned ground fights. We do different stunts, things of that sort. So we, um, so you try to find the mix between the two. So knowing what I know when I go into a show, I know that in the Lance passes, there's a pretty good possibility I'm going to win those because I've been doing it for a long time. I'm pretty good at what I do. But I know at other elements of the show, I'm going to set things up so that way when the guys crush me with something, it means something, all right? So I'll get out there. I will say specific things to antagonize the elements of the audience or to create an idea to myself that if I do it right, that when the guys crush me at the end of it, people are going to be really happy that I, I you know, that, that, that they ended me. You know what I mean? Like you're playing that, that villain character. Yeah. So, 
you know, it, it, it is that fine line. But again, because I, the, the element of performance, we, we use some of that trash. It's a bit more controlled, I guess I could, I, I guess you can say, like, I, I know what I'm doing with that audience that's in front of me. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all about the business. Eh? You got to create, you got to, you got to create a spectacle. You've got to create something worth okay. seeing. Yeah, hopefully, if I do it right, and, and I think, I'd like to believe that the tournaments that I've hosted and the shows that I put on, 90% of the time are highly successful, that people come back and really enjoy what we do. Um, I, again, I could be wrong, but my perception is that people like what we do because our stands are always full. So, pre-COVID anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. One thing I want to leave off, I mean, is thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. One thing, what would be life advice you give to your younger self? And what is a quote that you'd like to live your life by? Huh. Um, if I were going to talk to my younger self, I'd probably tell me to calm down a little bit. Because when I was younger, in my 20s, uh, I had a lot of energy, but it also, because I was insecure about some of the things that I was doing, it would manifest itself in me being very short tempered, uh, and a very serious lack of patience. Um, but over the years, again, from being more comfortable with myself as a, as a human being, but then, you know, the martial arts and everything, they, they really helped me settle down. Um, so I would definitely, if, if I was looking at my younger self, I'd tell him you're on a good path. You're going to have the ups and the downs. Um, and everything that's going to happen to you up until now is going to make you who you are, but, you know, learn to appreciate the moment and don't be so quick to anger. Um, and then definitely, uh, if I was going to leave out with a quote, you know, live for the moment is, is, is it, you know, and, and, and it's a fine line, you know, um, like it's easy. Like a lot of people, you know, especially like superstars or whatever that make millions of dollars are like, Oh, you know, they say that live for that moment you know, and, and, and you could do this and you could do that. You can be anything. And of course we all like, wow, I can make millions of dollars too. Um, my living for the moment involved me living in a horse trailer and living with very minimal, um, uh, things. Um, I gave up, you know, running water, shall we say, like I would have to come up with different ways to make sinks and wash stations and showers and how to make my living situation good. Um, you know, the bed area in the horse trailer was compact. It was smaller than the room I'm sitting in now, you know, but I was happy in that space. I enjoyed that because for not having a house, not having these different things allowed me to go out and just live life and explore humanity because I didn't have any bills over my head. So because I gave that up and lived minimally, it gave me the opportunity to explore my humanity more fully. Um, so it can be done. It just is a matter of what are you willing to give up to try and achieve a happiness that you feel you would like to have. And everybody's version of happiness is always going to be different. Um, you know, like I said, I found mine traveling the roads and, and working Renaissance fairs. Um, and, and through that, I found the thing that I'm most passionate about, and that's my horses and, and my love of training. Um, so yeah, I definitely live for the moment and it can manifest itself in, in many different ways. It doesn't have to look like, you know, The Rock or Kevin Hart or Brad Pitt or, you know, Denzel Washington and movie stars. It doesn't have to look like that. You can be 
just as happy and self-fulfilled living in a cardboard box if you're doing the things that bring you joy and happiness in your life. It is possible. Yeah. Ignore material things. Just just be you. Enjoy. Do what you enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I think. But, you know, who am I? <laughs> Everyone's different. <laughs> that's what makes exactly. the world interesting. Now, um, only thing I want to say is, do you have any handles you want to plug or anything you want to plug? Yeah. Um, for anybody that is ever in the uh, uh, Bastrop area of Texas or Austin area of Texas and you love Renaissance festivals, um, when we're allowed to reopen, come see the Sherwood Forest Fair. Uh, also, um, the organization that I, I belong to is Knights of the Grail, which you can find us at knightsofthegrail.org. Uh, and it's all about our therapy program and how we try to help uh, uh, veterans and first responders. Um, for anybody that might be interested in me as a horse trainer, you can look me up on Facebook uh, at Origins Horsemanship. Um, and then the name of our equestrian center where all our horses are based is the Knights Landing Equestrian Center, uh, which you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, and Knights of the Grail have a presence on Facebook as well. So, um, yeah, if you're interested in, in me or any of those organizations, please give us a look. Fantastic. Uh, drop me, uh, send me a link in the message and I'll post yep. it on the link. And yeah, stay safe and well, my friends.